Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Jason Jewell speaking, and you're about to listen to the first of three discussions on the tale of Baron and Luthien. The seminar participants have given this episode the ironical title, Father of the Year, because of the less-than-stellar behavior of Thingol, the ruler of the elf kingdom of Doriath, towards his would-be son-in-law Baron and his daughter Luthien. Most of us, with the exception of yours truly, jump onto a Thingol-bashing dogpile about two-thirds of the way through the episode. I actually attempt to defend Thingol, arguing that his past accomplishments and the difficulty of his present circumstances mitigate his conduct. This line of defense is the same as that used by the Plataeans about themselves when they surrendered to the Spartans during the Peloponnesian War, and its effectiveness can be seen in that shortly after the Plataeans made it, the Spartans executed them all. As you'll soon hear, my defense of Thingol wasn't much more successful. In this episode, you'll also hear a detailed discussion about the various forms of bondage present in the tale and the ways people are released from it as well as a number of comments on the dangers of taking oaths in Tolkien's world. We hope you enjoy Father of the Year. And I'll have you know, I was this close to forgetting to push the record button tonight. I just pushed it as you started oh. talking, so that was pretty close. Anyway, but it's on now. Okay, no problems. You want to start again? Nah, nah, nah. Nah, I didn't say anything important. <laughs> yeah, it's okay, go ahead. Okay. Uh, as I was reading the story, I was struck again um, by the fact that there's so many elements of of different things in the story. You know, there's the um, the the thing with you know when she escapes and she lets down her hair that reminds you of Rapunzel, and there's some yep. things that remind you of the the Icelandic sagas, and um, it just made me think of that part of on fairy stories where he talks about. Um, fairy stories as being like a soup mm -hmm. and I wanted to read some of it so in regard to fairy stories I feel that it is more interesting and also in its way more difficult to consider what they are what they have become for us and what values the long alchemic processes of time have produced in them in Dacent's words I would say we must be satisfied with the soup that is set before us and not desire to see the bones of the ox out of which it has been boiled and he, he goes on for a little bit, and the, and the last thing he says, but I do not, of course, forbid criticism of the soup as soup. So he's saying, we, you know, we sh it's tempting to sort of piece things apart and see where they all come from, but, you know, as a whole, it's something completely different than the sum of its parts. It's not just, you know, oh, he took Rapunzel and he took, you know, these other these other sagas and he twisted them around. Um, that's not the point. The point is that it becomes something completely new. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I do think that it's, that is the big temptation. The big temptation is to, you know, as, as he says, to try to, to try to, you know, to identify the bones of the ox. Um, when you notice things, especially when there are those moments which seem, you know, these really, these really clear echoes, as you say, the the Rapunzel moment um, is certainly the one that also jumps out at me uh, in this uh, in this part of the story um, as being so 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 clear. But you know the the problem I think you know that that we have to keep in mind and as as readers the temptation to resist as Tolkien is talking about there is basically feeling like observing that intrinsically helps us understand the story better because it doesn't necessarily you know i mean like okay so so luthien letting down her hair is like rapunzel letting down her hair um 
does that give it, what insight actually does that give us into the story of, of Luthien? Clearly, Rapunzel is in the soup. And it's interesting to think in connection to Rapunzel, and we can do some, you know, one, one, I don't think we'll have time tonight, but we could do some comparison and contrast with various versions of the Rapunzel story, and we can see some of the ways in which it seems to be operating and some of the things that Tolkien seems to be appealing to. You can do some interesting kind of analysis, but the problem seems to be that when, uh, when people identify stuff like that, there's often this impulse to be like, ah, now I see through this, right? That is, that, this, this moment with Luthien is the Rapunzel element. And in saying that, you stop thinking about what's happening with Luthien at that moment. Uh, and of course, in the context of this story, the moment when she lets down her hair is, you know, one illustration out of several of how we see, I mean, two of the things which are really emphasized about Luthien are her voice and her hair. Um, you know, her hair is also what is sort of serves as a cloak around her to, uh, to conceal her. Um, as she's traveling and everything. So we see that, you know, it's, 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 and that doesn't happen with Rapunzel. Um, so we see that this element, this, this Rapunzel element has been incorporated, has been, I almost said digested, which kind of reverses the analogy, but, um, anyway, has been, uh, has been acclimated into the stew. Um, and it's now, it's now a different thing. It is now its own soup. It's not, uh, you know, it's not just this piece that you can pick out anymore. Dave? You kind of already stole my thunder, but I was going to say that, that, I mean, on the other hand, you don't, you don't want to complete, you don't want to like just toss it out like, well, um, uh, Tolkien has forbidden us to, to, know, to, you know, draw analogies, so we're just going to pretend that this isn't almost exactly the same sort <laughs> of uh, narrative elements as the Rapunzel story has here. I mean, come on, it's like, it's almost exactly the same sort right. of thing going on, and I, I sort of I agree that like to to stop there and say, well, it's it's a Rapunzel story element, and then move and then keep and then not push any further. But uh, there's got to be some value in saying why you know why did he he had to have been aware that he was doing something that was very similar to Rapunzel, um, and so obviously he made a conscious choice to write it that way, and I wonder why, and maybe he's trying to elicit some of the same. Um, <clears throat> some of the same sort of elements and themes and ideas and imagery that, that he got when he first read or encountered the Rapunzel story, maybe? I don't know. I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, sure. No, and, and I think, I mean, you're right. It's, it, it certainly is fruitful to think about. Um, yeah, my only argument would just be that we need to think about it. So you think about the Rapunzel story, for instance, and I'm thinking, of course, of the Andrew Lang version of the Rapunzel story, which is freshest in my mind because I just did it in my fairy and fantasy class. And, there, Rapunzel letting down her hair, her hair does seem to be in some sense magical, though it's not obvious that that magic is entirely under her control. She is essentially the prisoner of a witch um, when she's letting down her hair. And she's letting down her hair at the command of the witch herself. I mean, she's essentially the servant, you know, she's being made the stepladder of the, or the rope ladder or whatever of the witch. And, you know, when the prince uh, dude... Oh, you know, oversees this one day, he calls out for her to let down her hair, and then he climbs up. And it's not initially at all really a rescue thing. It's just, you know, he comes up to visit her and is like, hey, here I am, climbing up your hair. Um, so we have the the Rapunzel character, although there is magic associated with her, she is almost an entirely passive character uh, in the Andrew Lang story. And of course, this it's, it's therefore, to me, really interesting that we get that Rapunzel element with Luthien at the moment when she is, you know, when she 
begins to be, for the first time in the story, um, very active and very autonomous. She, too, is being held prisoner up in a, you know, a treehouse prison, essentially. Um, but instead of just being held there as a slave and only letting down her hair to let her captor in, you know, to let her captor come in and out, essentially, um, instead she uses her hair to let herself out, uh, and to set herself free. Um, just as she uses her hair again, you know, very soon after that to conceal herself, as I said. So, um, so, I mean, even that one difference by itself, and then of course you think about the difference between the relation, you know, of the relationship between between Luthien and her, uh, you know, prince male interest, and uh, um, and Rapunzel and hers. Uh, I mean, again, Rapunzel does nothing like, um, uh, you know, breaking herself out of prison and then going to break him out of prison and um, making Sauron, you know, sit up and cry for mommy so um anyway it's 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 really different in those ways but of course those differences are are i think really emphasized um by that by that connection so you and you know and and i and i think it does more than just establish differences but but certainly when you start to think about it and you start to unpack it i think that it's um uh I think it, I think it gets really interesting. Um, and this is the kind of thing that I think is most, is most productive to do. You know, when you really put the stories next to each other and you begin to see how is this moment really functioning in this story? What are some ways in which it's building off of these other ideas and which it's, it's, it's moving away from them? I think it's, um, uh, I think it's pretty, I, I, I think it's pretty cool. So, um, uh, good. Well, let's, let's, Let's move on to uh, uh, section one. Our first topic uh, today is the title. Um, the title of the episode. The title of, well, not the episode, the title of the chapter. Um, or we're told, rather, not of Baron and Luthien. That's pretty straightforward. But we're told that this chapter is derived from a song which is called The Lay of Lathian, which is translated as Release from Bondage. Now, thoughts on... Uh, thoughts on release from bondage. Brandon, I think, uh, do you have, uh, do you have audio tonight, Brandon? It seems Brandon's audio is not working tonight. So I'll just read the question that Brandon asks. Cause he asks, you know, some very good questions, I think, to start this off here. Um, what kind of bondage is being referred to in release from bondage? He says, bondage is basically suffering. Is this a release from suffering? Uh, can what appears to be a tragedy really be eucatastrophic? Is there eucatastrophe involved here? That part of the question will probably sit, we'll save until next time. We're not going to get to the very end of the story. So, you know, uh, trying to discuss, is this ultimately a tragedy, uh, or is there a eucatastrophe? How do we understand that? We'll, we'll, of course, uh, talk about that primarily next week. Um, uh, and, and also he goes on to say, it seems like the real, Release from bondage is the marriage of elves and men, and I think that that's, you know, I want to come back to that in a minute. Though again, the actual marriage, the actual union between the two of them, um, we don't yet really see. We see their bond together, uh, to take the word bondage in a different sense. We see their bond with each other. Um, two things that I would kind of throw out just to sort of start here as well with the release from bondage things is sort of two things. One which is pretty obvious and one which I think is less obvious but really kind of jumped out at me this past time that I was reading it um, when I had this question in mind. The the sort of obvious thing is that it doesn't take long to notice that in this story called Release from Bondage, 
we get a whole bunch of really obvious prison and prison breaks, uh, you know, going on in this chapter, right? I mean, we have in this first half of the chapter, we had what, like three or four prison breaks. Um, so people are getting released from bondage all over the place. Um, so certainly we see that as a kind of, a, I mean, you start off with uh, even Baron's leaving uh, uh, Taranufulan uh, at the beginning, I mean, under tragic circumstances and stuff, when he's now literally the only member of the House of Beor left uh, up there. Um, but anyway, even so, even even that becomes for him a kind of prison, um, and he and he leaves there. But then you've got you've got Luthien escaping twice from prison. You, you know, once by her hair, as we've talked about, and once um, by Huon. And then you've got, of course, Finrod and Baron being held in prison, and Luthien and Huon come and rescue them. So even just just in this first half, we have people being literally released from bondage all over the place. But that's, as I said, the sort of simple thing, the more complicated thing, which I thought was really cool. Um, If you turn to page 167 in the trade paperback edition, um, this is the the moment of Baron and Luthien's meeting um, when he has just stumbled into Doriath. um, And he sees her for the first time, or right after he sees her for the first time, the second full paragraph. But she vanished from his sight, and he became dumb, as one that is bound under a spell. And he strayed long in the woods, wild and wary as a beast seeking for her. In his heart he called her Tenuvio, that signifies Nightingale, daughter of Twilight, in the grey elven tongue, for he had, for he knew no other name for her. And he saw her afar as leaves in the winds of autumn, and in winter as a star upon a hill, but a chain was upon his limbs." He, we have two very interesting, uh, bondage terms there in that paragraph. That is, he is bound, he is as one that is bound under a spell. And, and, and that is later on described as, as, uh, being as a chain that is upon his limbs. And this spell of silence falls from him later on. Um, and, uh, and, then uh, when he is freed from the initial bondage of, of, of the spell that she casts on him, um, down at the bottom of that page, and wandering in mind he groped as one that is stricken with sudden blindness and seeks with hands to grasp the vanished light. Thus he began the payment of anguish for the fate that was laid on him, and in his fate Luthien was caught, and being immortal she shared his mortality, and being free received his chain, and her anguish was greater than any other of the Aldalier has known. Um, so there again, Baron's chain. Now this seems to be a different kind of chain, not the chain of the spell, uh, not the chain that's placed upon his limbs when he is enchanted at the sight of her. Um, now, in t- now mortality seems to be being described as a chain, um, which which again is really interesting. As with many of the things we're going to talk about tonight, we're not going to be resolving anything finally, I think, until, you know, next time when we, when we talk about the end of the story. But, um, but I think there's some, there's some, there's some really cool stuff there. Obviously, the idea of, of bondage and escape from bondage, uh, has many different senses and, and sort of operates on many different levels in this story. Um, Dave? Eh, you stole my point. I was going to say something about it. <laughs> 
I, I thought it was interesting that the, the, the title of the chapter is Escape from, is or the title of the song Lay of Lathian is Release from Bondage, but that they point out that in falling in love with Baron, Luthien actually becomes bound by a chain. Uh, and I'm wondering, let's 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 push on that meaning of, of bondage for a moment, um, mortality. It would it would seem that that's what they're talking about there, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but uh, let's push on that. Do they escape from that um, bondage? Uh, if that's a chain, if mortality is a chain, do they they don't actually escape from that? They both die indeed, as they say of Luthien later in the chapter. Yeah. Now, of course, because see, the mortality thing is easy to turn around. Um, I mean, who is chained? Is is more are mortals or elves chained? Elves are the ones who are chained to Arda. Right, their spirits can't leave Arda uh, until the end of time. So it's mortals who uh, are free. You know, we've alluded several times to that passage in the Ainuindoe that talks about the unusual freedom of 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 men, and this certainly, even if not thinking um, in terms of free will. They certainly are freer in this sense. When they die, they go, the elves know not whither. They leave. They're free. Free of Arda, anyway, wherever it is that they go. Um, so, suppose suppose yeah. maybe this is one of those cases where we should appeal to the fact that this is an elf document, so the, the elves, in telling recounting the story, might might portray mortality as a chain or as bondage, but that's not necessarily the true, um, the, that's not necessarily the essential nature of mortality. Maybe it is actually more freedom than, um, uh, than, than what the elves have. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, mortality is the real freedom and immortality is the real bondage, but just that one can look at it from either direction. Certainly, um, from within the scope of their lives, it's the humans who seem to be chained, you know, that they are continually tied, you know, to time in this way that the elves, not the elves aren't time to t- tied to time at all, but, um, you know, their relationship with it is so different and they are so constrained, um, by the limitations that are, that, 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 that are placed on their activities, um, that certainly constrained at the very least is something that seems to describe them. Um, so I'm not saying that 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 you know that the elves are totally have it wrong, but yeah, I I do think that the story of Baron and Luthien here in the Silmarillion is one of the places where I think we can see some of the kind of elf bias most clearly, especially at the very beginning and the very end um, of the story. Um, and I want to come back and look especially at the ending when we get there um, from this perspective too next time because I do th- so basically one of the, at least one of the points to sort of put it simply or you know inconclusively is um, I think there's clearly some irony also not only is the title operating on different levels but there's definitely some irony involved um, Mike what were you going to say if we read bondage to mean uh, obligation. I think there might be another meeting there because in this chapter there are so many oaths and obligations floating around and in at least a couple of cases there's a character who successfully uh, discharges his responsibility under an obligation or an oath that he's earlier made. So in that sense there's a release from bondage if you view bondage in that sense of the word. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, I mean I think that there are definitely different senses in which um, – in which we can understand that. And it's, it's pretty clear, you know, from, as I say, from, from the very literal ways to, to some, some much more complicated ways. As I said, I, I definitely want to return to this topic probably at the very end when we, when we look at the very ending. Um, because the, 
the sort of the levels of release and of of bondage um, that are going to be happening um, at the end of this story, I think, are going to get really complicated. So we we sort of doing nothing nothing but anticipating at this point, really. Um, but it's definitely worth uh, worth uh, worth looking at. Um, let's see, John. Uh, would you be able to to talk a little bit about you wanted to talk about other versions of the title which i think is which i think is really interesting um are you able to talk about that what i was curious with uh because i haven't gone back to the book of lost tales uh recently is i was curious if there had been other optional titles which tolkien was originally considering for uh, release from bondage because you remember like um with the children of Hurin, he had like Narni Rach Morgoth, the tale of the curse of Morgoth, instead of uh, Narni King Hurin. So I wondered if um, there were alternative versions, you know, out there which could have different uh, opinions portrayed in different titles. That's a really good question, and unfortunately, I don't have. Uh, uh, this is one of the downsides of doing this. Uh, seminar from my house is that I don't have all my books with me, um, and most of my copies of the History of Middle Earth are in my office. I know that, let's see, in, I know in the Book of Lost Tales it wasn't called this initially, um, uh, but I'm but I'm 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 forgetting, and I don't want to say anything wrong. And of course, the thing with uh, the thing with um, of course, with with the Baron and Luthien story, is we get a version of this in the Lays of Beleriand as well. Um, and I'm trying to remember how the title was introduced in that, and I would need to I would need to look that up. So um, that's definitely um, that's definitely an interesting thing to to look at. And I'll see if I can uh, remember to look into that before next time and uh, get back to you guys on that. Yeah, the Tale of Tenuvio is what I thought um, it was called. Dave's jumping in because I have them in front of me and I'm looking Great. through now. So, so in the unless I don't know if there's discussion of it, but in the Book of Lost Tales, it's referred to as the Tale of Tenuvial. Yes. And in the Lays of Beleriand, it looks like it's it really is just the Lay of Lathian. Yeah. Okay. So that I, I was that's what I, I that, that's what I thought I was remembering, but I wanted to make sure that the Lay of Lathian comes from the 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 is is there in the Lays of Beleriand version. Um, the Lays of Beleriand version is just sort of explain this the this history a little bit. The Book of Lost Tales, um, th- those are the very first versions of the Silmarillion stories. Some of those date back to the 19-teens, uh, you know, when he was still in World War I and stuff. Um, so the Book of Lost Tales are the very earliest stuff. So these are the first versions of all these stories that we get. And um, and these the major stories, um, The Fall of Gondolin, uh, Baron and Luthien, Turin Turambar, all this stuff dates back from that time. And um, Two of the stories, um, well, in intention three, in practice two, he was, he, his, basically the next step, he was gonna write, um, a full, like, epic poetic version of them. So he started, uh, an epic poetic version of Baron and Luthien and wrote quite a bit of it. Um, and the volume three of the History of Middle Earth series, which is called The Lays of Beleriand, is basically, um, what exists of the long, uh, rhyming poem that he was uh, uh, writing of Baron and Luthien, and then the long alliterative verse poem that he was writing of Turin Turambar. So, um, yeah, so that's what we have there in the Lays of Beleriand. And then later on, when he's reworking the um, the the Quenta Silmarillion material, um, he comes back to it again. But those are the two sort of initial versions of it. Well, let's. Uh, Let's move on to. I say we'll we'll definitely come back more to the title because again I think that that uh, even more than um, 
more than most of the stories, uh, it's it's been pretty unusual so far that we've been given a title. Normally, when we have a reference to, for instance, you'll remember um, in the Kinslaying and stuff, we were told that a fuller version of the story of the of the of the Kinslaying was told in the song that Maglor made. Um, but and we were told the title of it. Uh, but we don't hear it. I mean, we were, it, it was alluded to because we were told, you know, if you want to hear the whole story, you should go to this poem. Um, this is an occasion where we're being told that what we're getting is a, here is a summary of this poem. So the, the, the title is being really brought to our attention. So I think that's obviously, that's obviously pretty important. Um, any comments that people want to make on, uh, on Barahir, on the, uh, time in, um, the time up in, Taranufuin with uh, Barahir and Baron and uh, his uh, band of, like, what's the opposite of merry men? I mean, his his band of like grim and dreary <laughs> men up in Taranufuin. Um, uh, yeah, thoughts about Gorlim the Unhappy, who's uh, one of my favorite, uh, has one of my favorite names. Um, and of course, I think here. By unhappy, he's not just meaning like Gorlim, the guy who was pretty sad a lot of the time. Though clearly he was Gorlim, he was kind of sad a lot of the time because, you know, we learn about his his uh, his wife that he's pretty sure is dead, and then finds out is definitely dead. But um, but of course, you know, also I think uh, Tolkien is using the older sense of that word unhappy, which means unfortunate, unlucky as well. Um, uh, that's that was the original you know meaning of 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 happy and so I, I think in that context it's very interesting um that he is called unhappy um not like the jerk who betrayed everybody but uh the unfortunate elizabeth go ahead i have a question actually about the dream that baron has um uh, that warns him about gorlam's uh, betrayal um and we see lots of dreams like this the kind of the premonitions and the the dreams of uh a forewarning and, and i just wonder what the origin of these dreams are do they come from i guess internally of the person or are they dreams that come from the valar or do they come from an external source yeah, that's a really good question. And of the two of them, the second one um, seems to be most uh, most clear. That is, you know, we have first. Well, I, I guess it's. Not, I'm thinking really. It's it's one dream. It's sort of the two parts of the one dream. Um, uh, worth reading. But as he slept benighted in the forest, he dreamed that carrion birds sat thick as leaves upon bare trees beside a mirror, and blood dripped from their beaks. Then Baron was aware in his dream of a form that came to him across the water, and it was a wraith of Gorlim, and it spoke to him, declaring his treachery and death, and bade him make haste to warn his father. Um, so we're told that this is a wraith of Gorlim. And so I have to, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that word wraith, it does sound like it's actually the spirit of Gorlim who is coming to him there. However, does this mean that Gorlim somehow has the, um, has the power to, you know, cause prophetic dreams and stuff? I, I don't think so. And I think it's a little bit suggestive. Where have we seen dreams come from? Who's the one who sends dreams? So far, we've got like a 100% um, significant, portentous, meaningful, and prophetic dreams being sent by Olmo, right? And I think it's it's a little bit conspicuous that a form came to him across the water. Um, there seems to be water involved. Um, 
in this dream. So, you know, eh, maybe, maybe. Not definitive, but uh, but I'm tempted in that direction. Just a follow-up question to that, uh, yeah. and not to get way off topic here, because I know we have a lot to cover, but we see so many dreams in Lord of the Rings, too. You know, Faramir has dreams, and Frodo has dreams. C- could we attribute those dreams as well to the Valar, or where would those come from, do you think? And I... I... I do, basically. I mean, there is some language in some places that, um, uh, that is, and I'm thinking here especially of the Valaquenta in the part where Oloran is discussed, that is Gandalf, um, or the spirit which will later on become Gandalf, um, as being associated with the dream, with dreams and the sending of, of, of good dreams. But there, it seems to be more, you know, fair visions and all that stuff. But there, it seems to be more like encouragement to the spirit and stuff like that, rather than like you are being sent a, pro- a prophetic, prophetic message or, you know, a dream like seek for the sword that is broken in Imladris it dwells. Um, that kind of dream, that does, doesn't that sound kind of Olmo-ish? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, and uh, a voice speaks from the West in the dream, um, you know, when, when he hears it. Yeah, I, I kind of have to think this is the Valar. And I think it's really interesting the way that it's, um, I think it's really interesting the way that Tolkien frames it. Tolkien is so restrained. I would never be able to restrain myself. If I had this whole mythology worked out like this behind the story when I was writing The Lord of the Rings, I, there's no way I could possibly resist, like, and now let me indulge myself in 15 pages of exposition to tell you where this came from. And, um, but he doesn't do that. Basically, he, 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 tells it from within the frame of the people, Faramir himself doesn't understand. Boromir is the one who, t- who from whom we hear about it, of course, and Boromir certainly doesn't understand. Um, he has less book learning and knows less lore than Faramir does. Um, and even Faramir's knowledge is imperfect. Um, but anyway, they don't really know. They don't, they don't really know the Valar. They know of the Valar. The, the Gondorians that we meet allude to the Valar, you know, like when the Mumak is bearing down on them, you know, the Valar, turn them aside. Um, but uh but still we don't we don't know really how much they know um but but yeah i mean i i don't see where else it comes from and it's exactly the way there's this clear pattern um you know uh, and uh, you know chris you just mentioned in the text chat that you know maybe it's from iluvatar himself it's possible but we do I mean, we do see the valar doing this lots of times so you know maybe maybe mike what are your thoughts yeah, just back to Gorlim. I what I uh, wrote down when I was reading this was it was interesting that this longer chapter, which is about you know sort of the the central love story that that Tolkien is telling between Baron and Luthien, the springboard to the action and the launch pad to the entire tale is this uh, love story between Gorlim and his wife that is cut short, and that that sort of resonated for me that the the sort of energy that gets the the larger story going that he wants to tell is this other love story that we don't get to hear about but it's cut off too soon and then the fact that Gorlam is in mourning is then manipulated by uh, Sauron and then we're off on the tail of Barad and Luthien. Yeah, no, I, I think that that is, that, that is, that is an excellent observation and, and it, it does serve in that way as a really um, as a really clear frame for the story and again we get within the context of their love and their relationship with each other um, we get again uh, f- uh, uh, release from bondage language. Um, so if we go back to that language that Sauron and Gorlim uses, um, Gorlim answered that you know when he when he's finally um, 
when Sauron demands his price for the treachery, Gorlim says that he should find Ilanel again and with her be set free. Then Sauron smiled, saying, That is a small price, so shall it surely be. And then he says, I will grant thy prayer. Go to Ilanel and be set free of my service. Um, so he releases him from bondage through death, through mortality again. Um, and again, that that sort of pity, that sort of piteous complaint, that that desire to be re, to be reunited um, with his beloved, and for the two of them to be set free. Um, that yeah, that's what that is. What as you say, Mike launches uh, this story and serves as a kind. Of, it seems to cheapen it to call it a foil to Baron and Luthien's relationship, but certainly a preparation, a setup. We see two people who are bound together. Um, and whose bond to each other transcends the bond of death. That is, he is still devoted to her. He is still connected to her, uh, even after she has died. And uh, and ultimately, you know, himself only through death is reunited with her. But that itself seems to be a kind of freedom. So anyway, I just again as another thing to kind of put into the release from bondage pot as well. There, um, I think Gorlim gives us some promptings there. Uh, yeah, Jordan, what are you thinking? Uh I love in a very like twisted way that Gorlam says, "If you give her, uh, give her to me and set us free, then I'll tell you whatever you want to know." And Sauron says, "Well, yeah, of course I'll do that. She's dead now; you are too." Like I just, I, it's very sort of dark on my part, but I love that moment of the book where uh, Sauron says, "Yeah, of course, your wish." Yeah, yeah. Um, I shall reunite you and see and but but there i think it's i think there is also beyond of certainly the darkness of sauron's motivations and the way in which he is mocking gorlim there there's also a kind of irony that is this is true in ways that that sauron either doesn't know about or doesn't care about um i it seems from what we see later on in this story um, that he is, in fact, reuniting Gorlim and Ilanel. Um, that this is not just mockery. That in some sense, uh, it is almost as if, um, you know, he does end up granting them a boon. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that in Tolkien's world, like, you know, two thumbs up to death at all times. Death is always awesome. But, um, but, but I do think that we can see, and we'll get back to this more when we talk about Turin Turambar, um, plenty of death to go around there. But, um, but I think that, yeah, I, I, there is that, that irony, um, in what he's saying. He is being intentionally ironic that he's sort of twisting this around on Gorlim, but I'm not sure that in the end, uh, at least to some extent, the last laugh isn't on Sauron there, actually. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, lots of uh, lots of really good stuff on 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 Gorlim that I think we could we could definitely talk about for a while. Um, but let's move on to uh, to the next section to to the big meeting between Baron and Luthien. Um, let's see, Brandon, uh, are you are you, are you audi- audio ready now? So you wanted to talk about. Uh, uh, you want to talk about the echoes with Thingo and Melian? Oh yeah, I mean it's just um I mean this will happen again with um with Arrowin and um Strider, but uh we know that there's this type of sort of um this one of these um and just being awestruck by her beauty and that aesthetic arrest of that moment. Um and just having that aesthetic just transfixation, I mean in some cases of Thingol's case, he's transfixed for a number of years, um, 
ages, it says, right? And um, but uh, and I just thought with that, at least Stingle would be a little more appreciative of where Baron's coming from, and maybe Melian is more appreciative um, about sort of a woman condescending herself to a man, and just the kind of um, just awestruck nature of the man, just saying, oh my god, how could something so beautiful ever happen? It's kind of like a fulfillment of the song, and so on and so forth. I don't know. I just see it as a type that will happen again, and we'll hear echoes of again later on down the road, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. It's no, definitely, and 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 I, <laughs> yeah, and I certainly agree that um, there is the parallels, the queer parallels, um, and we didn't even need the uh, the the Nightingale connection. Remember, Nightingales follow Melian around. Um, and Tunuvio means nightingale. We didn't even need that connection, uh, hopefully, to be reminded of you know when Thingol was spellbound by Melian's beauty, as you say, for years and years. Um, and so th- this kind of I think gives us some insight into what we're talking about when with that language of you know the the spell that is laid on him and and that you know his being bound by the by by the spell and and his chain there the first time that it refers to that. Um, but uh, because we should be remembering Thingol and him being completely, as you say, transfixed for 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 many years. But but at the same time, um, he apparently Thingol himself obviously has sort of forgotten this, and there's no question that there's uh, that there's a pretty a pretty sharp irony there um, in his his getting all indignant about uh, people marrying up, you know, and oh, you don't deserve. Um, you don't deserve uh, her. Well, you know who's talking here. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Let's see. Um, let's let's go. And there's. Oh, it's hard because uh, there's I so much I think to say about the meeting between Baron and Luthien, but in some ways, uh, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about it. Um, that is about the moment when they actually encounter each other. Um, it's one of the most iconic moments in all of Tolkien's fiction, I think I would say. Um, and of course there's a, there's a, there's a way in which this is a lesser echo of the Thingo and Melian version. Um, that is, this is like not only a generation down the road, but, but sort of scaled down, um, instead of the great elf Lord falling in love with the goddess, you have, um, you know, the great mortal man falling in love with the elf princess. But at the same time, there's also a sense in which the Thingol and Melian instance is really just an anticipation of this, and that this is really at the core of stuff. Mike? I, we can also say that uh, Baron is stooped over in gray, where he's been sort of washed out of all color, and Luthien is better than standing upright. She is dancing, and it, she, she's described in the most spectacular colors. So their first meeting is sort of described in these sort of opposites in terms of being bent over and lost, you know, lost of all color versus full of life, upright dancing and described in the most spectacular colors. Yes. But also shadows too. Isn't that interesting? Luthien has black hair. Um, and 
she's described as being you know the maiden of the twilight and 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 she's associated with shadows and that's one of the things that i find really fascinating about her is that you'd think that she would just be radiant and full of light i mean that's sort of the you know the sense you get and sometimes she is described that way um but she's not just radiant she's also shadowy and especially given the fact that baron has just come through this this journey of darkness and instead of finding the the release from that from the horror of his journey um and the evil in which he's been you know by which he's been confined instead of finding the release in that in something which is just completely opposite you know in something that is just like you know bright and and uh, and and radiant and and um and cheerful instead it's you know it basically he finds this darkness which is beautiful this shadow which is beautiful this twilight which is beautiful um remember the elves are always associated with the twilight um you know they are the children of the stars they are um you know that 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 the people who were alive during the you know during the starlight before the the rising of the sun and moon you know that's sort of the 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 home of the elves um so yeah, but anyway, I just find that I find that 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 really interesting that that you don't just get the um the light and darkness thing going on there. Um, Brandon, what are you thinking? No, I'm just thinking that this sorrow thing is just um deeper than what it you know this this kind of <sighs> there's two things I want to bring up. One thing is uh, one of the things is um we're told if we skip ahead a bit, I don't want to spoil anything, but um that the day. Turin Turambar was born. Baron met Luthien, and it's kind of like this counteraction story, be- as opposed to kind of that how death is resolved in that story, as opposed to how death is resolved in this story. Um, it seems that this beauty that Luthien has, it can't. You're right. It can't be just like gold beauty, like kind of Galadriel, elvish, um, white. You know, just kind of what we think of Varda. Um, this kind of blonde beauty, you know, mm-hmm. it's dark, you know, and it's sorrowful. So it's almost like, and I, I was just rereading the Return of the King, and I got to the part with Faramir and arrow in her eyes, and and it's sorrow in the beauty that pierces. It's it's sorrow in in her beauty that just pierces his heart and makes him fall in love with her. And there's even echoes of that type of relationship, and even that small relationship, you know. I just think it's. Everywhere you look, you see Tolkien trying to resolve this kind of suffering world with beauty. That beauty is sorrow. And from sorrow, you know, you can gain wisdom from that through Gandalf. I don't know. Yeah. It just yeah. seems like a very, very, like, interesting topic, yeah. Right, exactly. That the, 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 the cleansing of his grief, the cleansing of his pain, the cleansing of his sorrow is not happiness and joy and, you know, rainbows and, 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 uh, you know, and butterflies. Um, the, the cleansing of his, of his suffering is twilight, is seeing, is, is seeing, as, as you say, Brandon, sorrow and beauty mixed. Um, seeing the beauty in it i mean the fact that he named, he 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 sees this woman he doesn't know who she is um he doesn't know anything about her all that he knows is that he is you know bound under a spell by the sight of her and he's 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 straying around like a beast seeking for her in the woods and in his heart he calls her daughter of twilight um and that i think is just pretty amazing um dave 
Um, I just wanted to bring up uh, Aragorn and Arwen. Uh, they have a discussion um, in the appendix of Lord of the, Re- of the Return of the King where the, uh, Aragorn says something about essentially when they um, when they sort of choose to be together, they turn from both the shadow and the twilight. And I was wondering how that connects to things here. Um, I'm guessing, I, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I always understood that to mean that shadow obviously is evil, um, fear of death, things like that. And twilight, of course, is, is sort of the elvish stuff. Um, they turn from the desire for immortality. Um, and I wonder how that connects here, if at all. Yeah, that is a really good point. Um, because they're clearly, twilight, <laughs> when you're talking about the elves, uh, the word twilight begins to mean something different in the third age than it means in the first age. In the first age, we're very far from the twilight of the elves in Middle Earth. Um, we're still, we're not quite in the morning, but, you know, we're still, I don't know, maybe 11 a.m. in the day of the elves in Middle Earth. Um, by the time we get to the end of the Third Age, we're, we're told that now comes the Dominion of Men and the Elves are fading. Um, so the Elves themselves in their time in Middle-earth are in their twilight. And that's, of course, what Arwen is turning away from. She's turning away from the Shadow, which is, you know, Sauron and evil. Um, they're going to resist the Shadow, but she's not going to take, she's not going to simply go into the twilight, which she could do. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting, you know, with, with her, she could pass into the West which would seem like escaping from the darkness into the light. But even that, in in a sense, with her, seems to be kind of lumped into this idea of twilight. Um, Here... Twilight doesn't see, is not talking about, you know, the fading of the elves or sort of the destiny of the elven people. Um, But just... Yeah, darkness. That state of... I mean, here the way that it seems to be... What it seems to evoke in this passage, to me, seems to be that, you know... the status of twilight as neither dark nor light. It is not bright day, but it's not darkness. It's the time in between, the time which is both, the time which is, you know, thinking of the, you know, the phrase, the mingling of the lights. Well, this is, the twilight here is the mingling of light and darkness. Um, and, uh, and it's there, um, in that twilight, in that mingling, that, um, that Baron essentially, uh, finds healing. Um, and I think that's, I think that that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, but I know that several of you have been excited to get to the big meeting with the in-laws, which doesn't go particularly well for Baron. Um, you know, talk about, uh, being nervous about going home to meet her dad. Um, and, uh, Matt, you had had the suggest, you had made the suggestion earlier on, uh, this week that, uh, that we read some of this. Uh, we do a little dramatic reading, um, of uh the the part of the the passage the uh conflict between Thingol and Baron um and uh I, I think we should do that you guys ready uh Dave and Laura in this and Matt let us begin then Thingol looked upon Baron in scorn and anger but Melian was silent then said the king who are you that come hither as a thief and unbidden dare to approach my throne but Baron, being filled with dread, for the splendor of Menegroth and the majesty of Thingol were very great, answered nothing. Therefore Luthien spoke, and said, He is Baron, son of Barahir, lord of men, mighty foe of Morgoth, the tale of whose deeds has become a song even among the elves. Then said Thingol, Let Baron speak. What would you hear, unhappy mortal? And for what cause have you left your own land to enter this, which is forbidden to such as you? Can you show reason why my power should not be laid on you in heavy punishment for your insolence and folly? 
Then Baron, looking up, beheld the eyes of Luthien, and his glance went also to the face of Melian, and it seemed to him that words were put into his mouth. Fear left him, and the pride of the eldest house of men returned to him, and he said, My fate, O king, led me hither, through perils such as few even of the elves would dare, and here I have found what I sought not indeed, but finding I would possess forever. For it is above all gold and silver and beyond all jewels, neither rock nor steel, nor the fires of Morgoth, nor all the powers of the elf kingdoms shall keep me from the treasure that I desire. For Luthien, your daughter, is the fairest of all the children of the world. Then silence fell upon the hall, for those that stood there were astounded and afraid, and they thought that Baron would be slain. But Fingal spoke slowly, saying, Death have you earned with these words, and death you should find suddenly, had I not sworn an oath in haste, of which I repent, base-born mortal, who in the realm of Morgoth has learnt to creep in secret as his spies and thralls. Then Baron answered, Death you could give me earned or unearned, but the names I will not take from you of base-born, nor spy, nor thrall, by the ring of Felagund, that he gave to Barahir my father, on the battlefield of the north, my house has not earned such names from any elf, be he king or no. All right, excellent. So what do you guys think? Thoughts on the confrontation between Baron and and Thingol here? Let's see, uh, Matt, let's start with the, the point that you made, which I think is a, re- is, is a really interesting point, um, about Thingol's derogatory use of mortal here. I mean, there's twice in that passage when he seems to use the word mortal as an insult all by itself. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Laura? Yeah, I was struck by the irony of Thingol's um, attitude towards Baron, considering who he married. You know, he certainly looked very far above himself uh, with Melian. Uh, of course, he didn't have a, uh, a father-in-law to contend with at that point, but... Um, you know, he, 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 I mean, we don't see too much of his character before uh, the Noldor came back to Middle-earth, but, um, you know, he seems awfully full of pride, and he seems progressively to be getting more and more sort of, sort of uppity, sort of, uh, you know, uh, putting himself, you know, in charge of everybody else, and, um, you know, not even, in this point, not even listening to Melian, which, you know, I mean, come on, she's a Maiar, you know, you should be listening to her. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I just thought it was ironic the way he treats Baron, considering, you know, he was in sort of the same position himself. Yeah, and I think that this is something, uh, that's actually really interesting to think about. One thing that we can see um, in previous chapters, when we've gotten some of the interaction between uh, Thingol and Melian, um has been basically him basically it seems that not only has he forgotten that he married up at least as much as Baron is looking to marry up here but almost like he's sort of forgotten actually that he married up at all he doesn't seem to be paying so much attention to Melian uh anymore you know she makes she'll make prophecies she prophesied this exactly he is right now disregarding the prophecy that she made when he said no man shall ever come to my realm and she's like yeah actually one of the children of Beor is in fact going to come be and my power will not be able to restrain him for a fate greater than my than my power will be guiding him 
you know, and she's not explicitly saying, and here he is. But obviously, Thingol did not pay a lick of attention to that. And we saw even in the in that chapter when we get that little conversation between Melian and Goadriel, when she's turning and, you know, when Melian turns to Goadriel and basically sort of makes comments on what happens and we see a kind of division uh, between them, uh, between Melian and Thingol and sort of the way that they look at things. And I think that... Uh, in this, I would be tempted to see the pride of Thingol in operation, basically, and to, and to see certainly the way in which that pride is being manifested here in his conversation with Baron. But, um, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, I um, had several things going through my uh, head at the, on this, um, on the character, just the general character of Thingol. Um, first of all, as far as his attitude towards men, I mean, he's had a little contact with... Uh, um, the Valar, by having gone to Valinor, plus he's married to Amayar, um, as far, he, he must have heard, somebody must have told him along the way that men are also the children of Iluvatar, and so it's just a kind of a total disregard for, um, his, you know, Eru's creations, their, you know, fellow children, and so it's like, it, it, uh, in that, in addition to the point you made about him forgetting that he married up, but also that his pride just kind of is overwhelming. He has no apparently he whatever honor he had is gone now. He's got uh, he said that he would have broken the oath and killed Baron if if there was any hope of him actually getting a Silmaril. Um, he's got a wife that's really good at seeing the future, and he c- c- continues to ignore her uh, advice to and keeps getting demonstrated as being wrong. I just, I mean, if there's anyone in the whole story that is more illustrative of pride, more than Thingol, I don't know, I mean, Feanor perhaps, but I think uh, as far as pride goes, uh, Thingol gives him a run for his money. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I think, you know, as you said about his his attitude towards men, it is kind of... Feanorian. I mean, when we heard Feanor talk about the men before they were born, I mean, before when they were still to come, you know, in his whole, we, you know, no other race shall oust us speech, um, you know, you see that same attitude um, of rivalry and, uh, and, uh, you know, his being dismissive of them and everything. And we see Thingol where, you know, you've got again, uh, in con, in obvious contrast to, f- to, to Finrod, um, Thingol not even willing to think about it, not even willing to talk about it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, as you, as you say with, with Melian, uh, my favorite, um, my favorite, uh, 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 my favorite line by, um, by Melian is, is afterwards when uh, after you know he does it uh, Thingol does his thing, and um, she says okay. After you know he does it uh, Thingol does his thing, and um, she says okay. You know you have you have wrought cunning counsel, and and basically she's sort of she's not saying I told you so, but she's saying I would have told you. Um, you know wh- why why are you you know for not by you she said shall baron be slain and far and free does his fate lead him in the end yet is wound with yours take heed uh you know but he's not going to take heed take heed um and like i would have to before you bound yourself before you did any you know you said any of these stupid things i could have told you um 
you know, and it, that, that that's the place where before he say, he lays the, uh, um, the, uh, the 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 you know before he 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 makes the doom of Doriath. But yes, it's right after that on page one sixty eight. O king, you have devised cunning counsel. But if my eyes have not lost their sight, again emphasizing you're not paying attention. I have sight, by the way. Um, just in case you're curious, um, it is ill for you whether Baron fail in his errand. I don't even know why I'm prophesying right now. Nobody's listening to me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, that's. Uh, I think we can. This this is the moment I think where we can see most sharply the kind. And I hate to say divide because that's not quite the right. That's not quite the right word. Um, but the kind of divide between Thingo and Melian. Well, it kind of reminded me just for a brief moment of uh, of uh, Celeborn and Galadriel, and Galadriel kind of you know smacking him down a little bit. <laughs> yes. As far as. Uh, <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. Um, he would be rash indeed who said that thing, right? Um, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> yep, yep. No, there's that. Uh, definitely, it's one of the problems with uh, marrying up is that uh, sometimes, uh, say, uh, well, that is, if you're going to marry up, then it's best to pay attention to your wife, as uh, Thingol certainly ceases to do. Uh, Kelborn at least seems to take the prompting uh, when Coadriel <laughs> gives it to him. Um, so that's good, anyway. Um, She's yeah. the one with the ring. Yeah, definitely, definitely. No question who wears the ring in that marriage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Jason. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, I feel like just declaring victory and stopping right now after <laughs> the last couple of weeks. But uh, I'm trying to see things from uh, Thingle's point of view a little bit here. I mean, playing devil's advocate. I mean, the guy must have some redeeming qualities if, you know, all these... Teleri stayed in Beleriand and didn't cross the sea because they were waiting around on him. Um, and here's this stranger walking out of nowhere saying, hey, I'm, I've uh, violated all your laws and I want to marry your daughter, by the way. And so I could see how he might react to that somewhat negatively. And with the whole issue of him ignoring the parallel between Baron and himself with respect to marrying up, I mean, at least he can hang around with Melian for thousands of years whereas Baron cannot do that for Luthien. And you know, he may be thinking here, this guy's going to be around a few years, he's going to die, and then Luthien's going to be a widow forever. So, I mean, yeah, clearly the guy is flawed. He's, he's prideful, and that leads him to a bad end ultimately. But um, I think there are some mitigating factors here we should keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And just because Baron and Luthien are parallel, in a sense, to him and Melian, doesn't, as you say, mean that their situations are the same, and he should be recognizing that it's identical, because it isn't identical, and there are some important differences there, as you point out. And I would actually continue that uh, devil's advocacy one step further um, to to suggest at least some... Uh, look again at Baron's speech. Like, I'm sorry, this sounds sketchy to me. I mean, listen to this. My fate, O king, led me hither, through perils such as few even of the elves would dare. Okay, so we're boasting, but you know, all right, if you can deliver on the boast, like, it's not so bad. And here I have found what I sought not indeed, okay, but now wait for it, but finding I would possess forever. I would possess forever. Doesn't that set off any kind of warning bells here? For it is above all gold and silver and beyond all jewels. 
Okay, so it's better than jewels, but you were just talking about possessing it, and we've seen, uh, you know, Mr. Capital P pride himself in the possessiveness of jewels. Everybody who's really proud wants to possess stuff, like Melkor and Feanor. Is this a kind of a Feanorian moment by Baron here? What's up with that? And then, wait, wait, it's worse. Neither rock, nor steel, nor the fires of Morgoth, nor all the powers of the elf kingdoms shall keep from me the treasure that I desire. Who does that sound like? Uh, uh, vowing to pursue with vengeance and hatred to the ends of the world, Vala, demon, elf, or man as yet unborn, or any creature, great or small, good or evil, that time should bring forth unto the end of days, whoso should hold or take or keep a Silmaril from their possession. It's not exactly the same as the Oath of Feanor, but darn if I mean, that's, uh, I don't know, it sounds a little, a little Feanorian to me. What do you guys think? I agree. Yeah, I, I, you know, so again, like, I, you know, again, I don't want to be beating on Baron here. I, I Baron is clearly a good guy, but but that speech, again, uh, you know, Thingol's response to that speech is death. You have earned with these words. You know, I, 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 I as you say, Jason, I have a hard time totally blaming him for that. Mike, what do you think about that? Well, I don't know if I want to jump in right now and start talking about oaths because we're we're kind of touching on it. We're as when I got to this point in the chapter, I was I was logging all of the different oaths that different characters were making and how they were all starting to sort of come into collision with each other. So if others have other comments just on this particular scene, I'll step away. But I do want to yeah. come back to that because I I think you're touching on something that I found really interesting. Yeah, and I was. Uh kind of thinking of this discussion of Baron's words here as a sort of transition into the larger uh, conflicting oath issue that we're going to get into when we move to Nargothrond, which is next. Um, so we won't go too far away from this, but uh, but yeah, more on uh, more on Baron first, and then Mike, I'll come back to you um, for that. Dave? Sorry, uh, yeah, I'm uh, with Mike. I want to jump in on oaths when we get on to oaths. On oaths <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, no problem, no problem. Uh, 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 Chris, did you have something on Baron? Oh, just a, a, a follow-up comment, really. Um, I don't take back much of what I said about Thingol, but I, I think that a good point was made that uh, um, Thingol may go a little bit overboard, but uh, I, you know, it is his daughter, and uh, um, this guy shows up and declares that he's going to take her no matter what. So I, I guess I'll... I'll cut him some slack. Um, again, I think he does kind of... I don't back off what I said about pride, but uh, I have to concede that point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's just the thing that... The, of, of of all of the barren passage, the, the one that seems to me strangest is, shall keep from me the treasure that I desire. He makes it sound so unilateral. Uh, you know, it's sort of... One would could kind of wish that Baron's speech here were more like... You know, um, but Luthien and I really love each other, and we are bound to each other with love. Hey, surely, father-in-law, you can understand that. Um, you know, the binding of love, which comes across you all of a sudden when you're walking in the woods and, uh, and transgresses, you know, species barriers, like you're with me on this. You know, this, but that's not his approach. His approach is, you know, uh, my fate led me hither, and I am awesomer than many elves are, and I desire, you know, I would possess this treasure forever, and it's a really awesome treasure, and nothing shall ever keep from me the treasure that I desire. 
That's um, very Feanorish. <laughs> yeah, it is very Feanorish. No, I mean, th- th- but I think there are some differences. I mean, I I, I don't want to go too far with that. I don't think this is Baron totally uh, totally going off the cliff. Um, but I do think that you know we we can see, and certainly, I you know at the very the very very least we can say about Baron is he's going to redeem himself pretty pretty heartily later on, but um, pretty emphatically. But but still, this is a this is a moment and. Remember, Baron still by the end of the first half, um, although he accomplishes a lot, I mean, you know, his rescuing of the ring and his journey, you know, we're told his journey through the Arid Gorgoroth that is not the Mordor Arid Gorgoroth, but the other ones, um, he's, you know, he, he certainly is accomplishing stuff that nobody else, uh, that nobody else accomplishes, um, and, you know, so I'm not saying that he doesn't do anything, but he is certainly, not going to do anything yet for a while. He goes to Nargothrond and he gets help. Um, he's done very little except sit in prison. Um, you know, he, he's he's managed to get arrested and he's going to manage to sit in prison. But from this point, um, he's not going to do very much for a while. And I think it's interesting to see when Baron becomes a more active uh player in this story you know we, we, I, I was alluding to earlier that you know that 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 Rapunzel moment that Luthien has is sort of the moment when she becomes a really active player in this story we'll see the moment when Baron becomes a more active player in this story and that's later on and I think it'll be important to remember this speech uh, when we get there um, let's see uh, Laura go ahead yeah, I thought I'd uh, come to the defense of Baron a little bit, and not just because I play Luthien in that little drama. <laughs> but, uh, uh, right before that uh, speech of Baron, it says, uh, Then Baron looked up, beheld the eyes of Luthien, and his glance went also to the face of Melian, and it seemed to him that words were put into his mouth. Fear left him, and the pride of the eldest house of men returned to him. So, So these words, you know, are not exactly coming from what he was thinking of saying. I mean, he's so intimidated by Thingol, he can't say anything. And and I kind of feel like if he had gone in and said, uh, you know, I love your daughter and I want to marry her, Thingol would have just laughed him right out of the cave. Mm-hmm. He would have said, you know, just get out of here. Um, you know, he, he's speaking a language that um, these elf kings understand, and that's the language of, of this kind of oath, you know, this this kind of, over-the-top sort of um, speech about, uh, you know, that, that maybe in, in a way is supposed to remind you of someone who uh, wants a Silmaril. You know, it's not just, it's not just love, it's also, um, you know, possession or, or something beyond that, something that's going to last forever, that's permanent. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really important reminder that words are being put in his mouth at this moment. Um He's not, this is not just him expressing his own opinion. Um, but of course it does open the question, who's putting the words in his mouth right now? I mean, what happens right before he looks at Luthien and he looks into Luthien's eyes and then Melian's face and then words are put in his mouth. It seemed almost, uh, before he starts talking, it sounds like Melian has inspired him to speak. Um, then when he says what he says, you know, it's a little bit less clear that it's uh the you know i but i think it depends on what we mean by words 
what we understand by words being put into his mouth. That is, I don't think that we are necessarily to understand that, you know, thoughts and sentiments, thoughts that he didn't think and sentiments that he didn't have are put into his mind, um, but rather the expression of his thoughts are given, given words. So, um, <laughs> I'm just looking at the text here, noticing Jason. We've uh, we've we've said the thing you're going to say. I would like to give Jason Jewell credit for those points. He was totally going to say that far better than I said it. Um, let's see, Jordan. You wanted to uh, you wanted to pitch into the the Great Baron battle here. Yeah, I'm ready to be an apologist. Um, so, although Baron's sentiment that he speaks is this, like, I will possess her and she will be mine, it is a mutual feeling, and he knows that going into it. It's not like he's, you know, uh, uh, going to be, uh, is it, oh, now I can't think of the dark elf that Dave Aeol, yeah. two weeks ago. Aeol, yes. It's not like Aeol, and he's holding her against giant grandeur of a statement. It is also her belief as well. Yeah, that's true. That's actually an interesting kind of contrast, and we talked about that a little bit at the time. That is, Aeol and um, uh, and Arathel being a kind of foil for Thingo and Melian, especially since it's the same piece of woodland that that it happens in, that their meeting happens in, and so that I think is an interesting counterpoint to go back to. Um, certainly, with Aeol, we get somebody who who stakes a claim on. Uh, on on a woman, you know, the, who, whom he has entrapped, I mean, literally entrapped in his home, um, and then later, <clears throat> and then marries, though again, we're not told it's entirely and utterly against her will, and that she was always unhappy, but... Um, but anyway, he clearly is transgressing here, and then later on is speaking proudly and arrogantly to the sons of Fanor and even to Turgon about... Um, you know, sort of what is his and his possessiveness. Um, you know, you shall not take what is mine. Um, and that language, I think, sounds different here. And and Jordan, you're right. At the very least, the fact that he started off the speech by looking into Luthien's eyes. You know, and th- there does seem to be. You know, he's not just speaking for himself. This is not. Um, you know, sort of his awkward way of making a proposal to her. Um, they already have an agreement and an understanding. And I I, I think that we it is necessary and important for us to keep that in mind um as we uh, as we as we as we hear his words here um i want to i want to mo- move on to the oaths but uh but um keep this keep this passage in mind i want to come back to this um this speech by baron when uh when we get to as it, what I really feel is his fir- his first really big moment within their love story um within their story together after he's set free. So, and we'll look at that next time. Um, but, uh, but onto the, on, onto Nargothrond and the, the complex, uh, oaths. And I know Mike and Dave wanted to talk about that. Uh, Mike, do you want to start off talking about those oaths? Sure. Um, what I'd like to do is, uh, I just sort of run down all of the oaths that I saw floating around in this chapter. But before I do, I was reminded of the last thing that Elrond says to the Fellowship of the Ring, to the Nine, before he lets them leave. He says, all right, Frodo, you have a kind of a, a, an oath, but the rest of you, no oaths, uh, because sometimes oaths go wrong. And Gimli says, no oaths help to strengthen your heart. And right. then um, Elrond says, well, no, an oath can also break your heart. And so, so here, here are the oaths that I, I caught. Uh, there's Baron's oath over his dead father, I'm going to avenge your death. 
There's yeah. Thingol's oath to Luthien. Don't you got to promise me? Don't hurt Baron. There's yeah. the oath of of Baron to Thingol. Um, I will I will get Luthien and keep her forever. Uh, well, there's Thingol's request to Baron to get the Silmaril that triggers the oath of Feanor. There's now we're on to Felagund has a an oath that he owes to Bara here. There's the Caligorm proclaiming the oath uh, outright after that. Then there's Felagund noting to his subjects that they're free to break their oaths that they owe to him since he's about to leave with Baron. And I think that was it as far as I got. But I just thought seeing all of these competing oaths and then catching how Elrond in Fellowship of the Ring has this ambivalent attitude towards oaths, I thought that was pretty cool yeah yeah it is kind of it kind of uh kind of fun in retrospect elrond being like you know guys i gotta tell you oaths uh it often doesn't work out let's not go there um yeah yeah definitely um it certainly is complicated in the moment where our attention is really drawn to it. Um, we see, you know, for in the scene that we were just looking at, sort of two oaths almost going at loggerheads, or not exactly at loggerheads. What happens is Baron starts with his oath, um, which sounds kind of disturbingly like Feanor's oath, um, that, you know, Luthien is to Baron what the Silmarils are to Feanor, which is uncomfortable. Um, and then essentially the oath that Thingol lays on Baron is, 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 is essentially like a manipulation of that, of Baron's initial oath. Oh, you say that you're not going to let anything keep you from the, the thing, the treasure that you desire to possess. Well, fine. Okay. Then surely g- doing such a small thing as getting a Silmaril won't, won't get in your way. Um, so it's, 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 it's not even necessarily an entirely new oath being placed upon Baron, but a very uncomfortable um, enactment of the oath that Baron has already made. Um, but uh, before I steal your thunder again, Dave, I better let you start talking. Go ahead. Um, I just wanted to point out that, that some of the oaths in this chapter seem like positive oaths. Like, Felagun's oath obviously on the surface looks like a good oath he he took the sworn oath to aid the 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 you know the family of barahir because barahir saved his life so his life's sort of forfeit anyway and thingol's thingol's oath even though he regrets it is a good oath he he swears an oath not to harm baron and yet these oaths end up roping them into a far greater more powerful more terrible oath the oath of Feanor and the accompanying curse of mandos and so even when oaths are good, they can end up leading, uh, you know, leading to bad consequences. Um, uh, that, you know that that there, there's there's really, you know, I mean that there's unforeseen consequences in the future. Um, you can't predict what will come of the oath that you swear now. And, and maybe this is why later in the Lord of the Rings, Elrond's like, "We're not doing oaths, guys." Right. <laughs> Who knows right. what will come of them? <laughs> right. Exactly. Who knows? No, I mean, and the I... oath of Fanor still around, working evil. I just let's just stay away from oaths altogether. <laughs> right. Um, so right. I think that's the really interesting and complicated thing about oaths. And actually, Chris is bringing up something that I was thinking too. That the you what you see in World War One and World War Two are, are alliances um, leading to a domino effect in terms of war. And alliances on the surface seem great. Like you know, hey, we'll 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 come and protect you if someone attacks you. But when you get this sort of complicated network like.
like structure of, of intermingling oaths and alliances. Next thing you know, everyone's pulled into war, everyone's pulled into the oath of Feanor, and everyone ends up suffering the consequences of the curse of Mandos and just sort of the, all the general evilness surrounding the Noldor. And so even good oaths can end up proving to be bad. Yeah, yeah. And I would just to, to, to emphasize that point that you're saying, I love um, Finrod's final point about that, you know, his, his, his final statement where he talks about the Oath of Feanor and unfortunately two of the sons of Feanor are here right now and so this is going to, I know this is going to go badly and he ends by saying, yet my own oath holds and thus we are all ensnared. Um, that idea of being ensnared, as you say, even by a good oath, the oath, yeah, the oath that he swore to bar here was good. Um, though it also has an element of a rash promise in it. You know, I promise help in every need that I will do. I will, I will help him, whatever the situation is. Um, perhaps maybe Finrod, you could have phrased that oath a little differently. Um, but you know, I'm not sure that even if he had, he would still have said at this point, basically he could conceivably have been more cautious in his oath so that he wouldn't be completely bound to do now what he has to do now for Baron. But you know, had he just made a more cautious oath to Barry here, I'm not sure he doesn't do the same thing anyway. Um, because he's a good guy and Baron needs so, help. So the lesson then is, so the lesson then is always include a loophole in your oath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's the, 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 the rash promise thing. Like when somebody comes to King Arthur and says, you know, promise that you'll give me whatever I ask you. And King Arthur always falls for this. Um, you know, it's like, oh, yes, I promise whatever you ask me later on, I will give you. Um, and then it's always uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, um, and so to some extent there's there's an element of that kind of a rash vow in uh, in in Finrod's promise um but you know and 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 he is kind of ensnared by it but again I but I do agree with you Dave that I don't think that it certainly doesn't make his pledge to Bari here a bad thing um Jason you know with all this talk about oaths going bad I I can't remember has anybody thrown out a Jephthah parallel yet no, but you might as well. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too. Well, yeah, this is the story from the Book of Judges where Jephthah is, wins a big battle, and in gratitude he swears an oath to um, um, offer up to God as a sacrifice. The, the first thing that, that he sees when he gets home or the first thing that comes out to meet him, and, of course, he gets home and it's his daughter. Uh, and so you have this sort of ambiguous ending to the story where it says that he he did as he had promised, but so you're left to infer, I guess, that he actually did sacrifice her after she was given a period of, of mourning for her virginity. But uh, it's it's a great biblical parallel of, a, of an oath that was sworn with good intentions and as, a, as an expression of gratitude even, but then goes horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, horribly wrong. And, and that certainly is does seem to be the moral of the story of, of, of Jephthah. Um, no, I mean... I, yeah, that one of the things certainly that we see in the story of Jephthah and that we see in the story of Finrod is again, you know, as Dave was saying, this inability to predict stuff. You know, you just you can't know what's going to happen. Um, so anytime you say I'm going to make a promise that I'm going to do this, you know, that this is, um, you know, well, you can't foresee what's going to happen. Which, of course, reminds me of Melian, the one who can foresee what's going to happen, but uh, uh, but her husband isn't paying attention. Um, yeah, Brandon? You no, know, I, I don't know if it's so much the oath 
or the the taking of an oath, which is a bad thing, because taking oaths seems to me a, a very good thing. That is, that you're subserving, you're humbling yourself not to the oath and not to yourself and to your own ego. And like we have the Hippocratic oath, and you know we swear on different oaths, we agree on these different things. It's not the oath itself; it's the people making taking the oath that's the problem. It's not the oath and the um, the sort of transcendence there. It's, it's, there's nothing to do with it. The, taking an oath isn't a bad thing. Um, the people, how you go about swearing to the or your allegiance to the oath is the bad thing. So it's, again, it's people's decisions. It's not the oath itself, I don't think. Well, I mean, I agree that, um, I agree that certainly, I mean, obviously some people, you know, the bad people take bad oaths and stuff. Um, but again, but I think that in both with both uh Finrod and uh the parallel that Jason suggested with Jephthah, we see a good person who, in what seems to be for good reasons, takes an oath which ends up ensnaring him uh, with Jephthah ensnaring him into uh it, what seems a, a a really bad or at least certainly very tragic act and um with Finrod ultimately to his own ultimately to his own destruction. Um, I think to his own destruction, but we'll get back to that next time. Um, uh, Mike? How would we put in context Sam's oath to Frodo kind of early on in Fellowship of the Ring where Sam kind of very privately promises never to leave Frodo? Is that an oath? Hmm. When it's interesting, it's to the elves that he makes it. It's to... uh, um, the the elves of the house of Finrod. Uh, there are some uh, some some Nargothrond refugees uh, that uh, Frodo and 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 Sam and Pippin run into in the Shire there in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, uh, and it's to them that uh, Sam is talking when he makes that oath. If it's an oath, that semi oath. Um, let's see. I'm trying to remember Sam's words. Sam says, you know, he quotes them and he says, you know, don't you don't you leave him? They say like they're they're encouraging Sam not to leave Frodo, and he proclaims his intention not to leave him. But I guess that could be that could be taken as an oath. Of course, one I I also remember Faramir's words here. Of course, that um, that he would have taken his words that you know he wouldn't have picked it up if he found it by the by the highway, um, and he would have taken that as an oath even though it wasn't solemnly sworn. So it does seem that there are promises like that. When you, when you say something, when you declare that you're going to do something, um, you, you, uh, uh, you deliver on it. Thinking, by the way, of another person who is ensnared in an oath um, would be uh, uh, Brego, the uh, son, uh, the son of the King of Rohan, who at the, at the christening feast of Meduseld, um swears the oath to walk the paths of the dead and uh and tries and dies and he's the skeleton with the sword that they find when they go through the paths of the dead um certainly another person who gets ensnared but now there i mean he was drunk and made a an oath a rash oath which he couldn't keep or couldn't survive keeping but did keep it um yeah yeah no sam does say that he uh yeah yeah and i mean sam clearly sam clearly thinks of it as a promise um yeah. Um, Dave? Um, I was thinking maybe one difference between Sam's promise 
and um, the oaths that we see sworn time and again throughout the Silmarillion is uh, humility and pride. Um, I don't know if that's the difference between a good oath and a bad oath, or maybe the difference between a promise and an oath in general, but there does seem to be something qualitatively different between Sam's promise to never leave Frodo and somebody sort of rashly and and and, and, and sort of grandiosely promising, like, in any need, I will help your people. Here's my ring. Take this. Or, yes. or I will pursue the, the Silmarillions until, you know, until the end of the world, no matter who gets them. Or I will do whatever it takes to win the hand of your daughter. And right. Seems right. to be a... Uh, it seems to be a humility versus pride difference here, like we've hit on for like uh, attitudes toward death and other things. Yeah, yeah, and I think the biggest thing, and I, you're very right. And to me, the big difference there is the future. Um, those oaths involve the future and sort of make assumptions about the future. Um, under whatever circumstances, I won't let anything stand between you know me and the Silmarils. And we'll see in the end the final. Um, the final snare that the Oath of Feanor catches um, Mithros and Maglor in. Um, and you can see, like, this is... There are a whole bunch of contingencies that they didn't anticipate when they made that oath and that they're going to get caught in. Um, and the same thing with Baron's oath, as we can see. Thingol immediately catches him in that. And the same thing with with Finrod. At whatever point in the future, whatever help anyone in your line happens to need, I will give it. And that is how he is ensnared um, in this moment. Whereas with Sam, Sam is already sticking to Frodo. He is already with Frodo and supporting him and what his promise is, what his, his, if, if he's swearing an oath, what his oath is, is to keep doing what he's doing. Like, I shall persevere in the task that I have already undertaken. And that's a totally different thing to do, a totally different thing to say than these kind of like, I'm going to kind of presume that, um, that I, that I know how this is going to go in the future. Um, it has in that, it has to do with the future because it's about his, his intentions of how he's going to act, but it's not nearly, um, it's not nearly the same thing. Chris? I might, I might be saying, just reiterating what you're saying, just a little bit nature, or a little bit different, but I guess it's the, the absolute nature of the way these uh, oaths are worded that, like you said, no matter what happens, no, whether, no matter what extenuating circumstances, whether Finrod, the, the whole of Valerian would have been much better off if Finrod hadn't have taken an oath Maybe he could have just backed that down to, you know, back that down a little bit so something a little less absolute. Nargothron obviously would have been much better off if he'd have stayed there. The sons of, of Feanor probably couldn't have um, did, did what they did, or and maybe Turin wouldn't have done the things that he did. Uh, if, But again, getting back to the absolute nature of these oaths, you know, leading into looking into the future and assuming you know everything that's going to happen, that nothing's going to happen that's going to make you sorry that you made that uh, made that promise or, or took the oath. Right, right. And even with, even with Finrod here, even assuming, as I said, I, I kind of assume that even if he had no oath and Baron showed... I mean, even if, you know, Barahir saves Finrod's life and Finrod doesn't swear this binding oath and then 
Barahir's son, Baron, shows up and it tells him the story. Oh, yeah, you know, let me tell you about how, how Barahir, your friend, was hunted down and only I escaped. And and uh, and then I got screwed over by Thingol and now here's the situation I'm in. I got to think Finrod wants to help him anyway. But what he doesn't have to do... I agree. Is out himself to f- to Kelgorm and Guruvin right there and be like, so um, sons of Feanor, I'm gonna go after a Silmaril now if that's okay with you. I mean, he wouldn't have to do that. He could. He wouldn't be ensnared in that in in that way. His his hands wouldn't be tied in the same way that they are tied. Um, so yeah, I I do think that that's um that's a big uh, um I I do think that that's a pretty big difference. Um, okay. All right, so here's the story. I don't. We're it's getting pretty late now, and I don't want to start the fight between Finrod and Sauron until we can do it justice. I totally agree with the sentiments that have been raised by several of you that we should definitely read some of that poetry, and and uh, we need to have some style time moments here uh, in thinking about uh, this song and this conflict. This is a big. It, it's one of the things that I always come back to. Um, you know, when somebody asks me the question of how, when somebody wants to talk about how magic works in Tolkien's world, this moment is one of the ones that I always come back to. Um, that we, uh, um, that th- this this fight between Finrod and uh, and Sauron. So, so let's start there next time, which means that we may end up doing three weeks on uh, this chapter instead of two. So uh, Dave will get his extra time, perhaps. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, I'm open to that. I, I think certainly if there's any uh, if there's any chapter we're going to spend three weeks on, it'll be this one. I'm going to warn you in advance, I can't bear to spend three weeks on Tour and Tour and Bar. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, we'll have to have, like, Suicide Watch by the end of that. Um, but, uh, but Baron and Luthien, we can totally spend, we can totally spend three weeks on. So, um, uh, so, so, uh, we'll see. We'll see what we do. Uh, we'll, we'll start with, uh, we'll start with Finrod, um, uh, and 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 Sauron, and then get to Luthien and Huon, and uh, um, and then move forward to Melkor and the Silmaril and Karkaroth and everybody else. So, um, okay, so so yeah, so let's end there for tonight. Thanks everybody. Good uh, good talking to you guys again tonight, and I look forward to at least one more week of uh, Baron and Luthien. Two more weeks. <laughs> Two more weeks. I understand. All right. Good night, everybody. <laughs> I just have to laugh at Dave. That's too funny. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.